Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Blog Talk Radio's Trundle Bed Tales. Today I'm having a couple of um, interesting things come together for sort of a different episode. First off, uh, I wanted to do an um, an episode in honor of National Read Day, Read Aloud Day. Uh, World Read Aloud Day was this year, March 7th, and it's set up to take action to show the world the right to read and write belongs to all people. So it wants to encourage people to raise their voice and read out loud to someone today. So I was going to do that yesterday on the 7th, and I didn't get it done. However, I had gotten the stuff picked out that I was going to read, and I wanted to... uh, do a couple technical changes that I was having to to fix on my headset. So I wanted to do this sort of as a test, too, to make sure that things were coming through okay. So what I'm going to do today is do some reading from readers. I started to collect one-room school readers uh, before I even got interested in doing serious research on either one-room schools or Laura. And so I have quite a few of them. And I think I'll probably have to devote a a whole episode to talking about uh, different readers that there are and uh, ones that you might like. Because people kind of have, I think, a wrong idea about the types of readers that were used. And I wanted to start out with reading something out of one of the very same readers that Laura Ingalls Wilder had. Now, this isn't her copy, but this is the actual publisher edition level reader that she used. It's the Independent National Reader, and this is the fifth reader, or like the fifth level. And I'm just going to read a couple pieces that are out of this particular reader. And I hope that everyone enjoys them. The first one that I'm going to pick is Paul Revere's Ride. Now, this is not the poem in its entirety because there's actually quite a long piece uh, surrounding the part we know as Paul Revere's Ride on both sides. But this is the Paul Revere's Ride part. And it's one I actually had memorized once upon a time. So we'll see how far we go. This reader is one that is well known for, besides just teaching people how to read, they tried to teach you how to speak, how to read aloud. And there's a very long section at the beginning that talks about how to read properly and how to do elocution. So... Uh, I'm going to be reading these with a little bit of that flair. Paul Revere's Ride 
Listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One, if by land, and two, if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm to every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said good night and with muffled oars silently rowed to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay where, swinging wide at her moorings, lay the Somerset, British man of war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watchers with eager ears, Till through the silence around him he hears the muster of men at the barracks door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed to the tower of the church, up the wooden stairs with stealthy tread, to the belfry chamber overhead, and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade, up the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and look down, a moment on the roofs of the town, and the moonlight flowing over all, beneath in the churchyard. Lay the dead in their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went, creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile... Impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride, on the opposite shore walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near. Then impetuous stamped the earth, and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church, as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer, and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full in his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns, a hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night, and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides, and under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It is twelve by the...
Oliver's dog and felt the damp up into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting house windows blank and bare gaze at him with a spectral glare, as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work that they would look upon. It was two by the village clock. When he came to the bridge in Concord Town, he heard the bleeding of the flock and the twitter of the birds among the trees, and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown, and one was safe and asleep in his bed. Who at the bridge would be the first to fall? Who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball? You know the rest. In the books you have read, how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane and crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore, for born on the right wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, I have a great passion for these old readers and elocution processes. This particular reader I find especially interesting because it puts in all sorts of little accents to tell you exactly when you should be uh, making a big point and when you should be backing off. And I always find it very uh, interesting because it's printed that way. I mean, it is a reader that is definitely designed to be read aloud. Although not all readers are like that. And we actually have some books that were ones that my grandmother had when she was in one-room school where her mother has gone in uh, with a pencil and put in these kind of marks. So I always find it very interesting. The next piece I'm going to do for you is another Longfellow piece, and it's called The Village Blacksmith. Under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. The smith, a mighty man, is he, with large and sinewy hands, and the muscles of his brawny arms are strong as iron bands. His hair is crisp and black and long. His face is like the tan. His brow is wet with honest sweat. He earns whate'er he can. He looks the whole world in the face, for he owes not any man. Week in, week out, from morn to night, you can hear his bellows blow. You can hear him swing his heavy sledge with measured beat and slow, like a sexton ringing the village bell when the evening sun is low. And the children coming home from school look in at the open door. They love to see the flaming forge and hear the bellows roar and catch the burning sparks that fly like chaff from a threshing floor. He goes on Sunday to the church and sits among his boys. He hears the parson pray and preach. He hears his daughter's voice singing in the village choir, and it makes his heart rejoice. It sounds to him like her mother's voice singing in paradise. 
He needs must think of her once more, how in the grave she lies, and with his hard, rough hand he wipes a tear out of his eyes. Toiling, rejoicing, sorrowing, onward through life he goes. Each morning sees some task begin, each evening sees it close. Something attempted, something done, has earned a night's repose. Thanks, thanks to thee, my worthy friend, for the lesson thou hast taught. Thus at the flaming forge of life our fortunes must be wrought. Thus on its sounding anvil shaped each burning deed and thought. Longfellow I always have a particular softness for this poem because I particularly liked the part where it says, about each morning sees some task begun and each evening sees it closed. And I always look at that with such great uh, envy because, frankly, I never get to say that almost. It's almost always something where I'm doing just part of many different things. And so I always think there must be such accomplishment in being able to say that, that you started and stopped the task. Now, I'm going to uh, do this next poem is one that it's basically a cold reading, but I wanted to include it because one of the things that I think people like about Laura's writing is how she includes um, noises and kind of gives you a feeling of what it's like to be in the place. And I think she might have been partially inspired by this particular poem, which does a brilliant job of doing that same thing. Uh, So here we go. The Song of the Forge. Clang, clang, the massive anvils ring. Clang, clang, a hundred hammers swing. Like the thunder rattle of a tropic sky, the mighty blows still multiply. Clang, clang, say brothers of the dusky brow. Where are, what are your strong arms forging now? Clang, clang, we forge the coulters now, the coulter of the kindly plow. Uh, be not father, bless our toil. May its broad furrows still unbind to genial rains, to sun and wind, the most productive soil. Clang, clang, our coulter's course shall be on many a sweet and sheltered lea, by many a streamlet silver tide, amid the song of morning birds, amid the low of sauntering herds, amid soft breezes which do stray through woodbine hedges and sweet may along the green hill's side. When regal autumn's bountainous hand with a widespread glory clothes the land, wind to the valleys from the brow of each resplendent slope is rolled a ruddy sea of living gold. We bless, we bless the plow. Clang, clang, again, my mates, what glows beneath the hammer's potent blows. Clang, clang, we forge the giant chain which bears the gallant vessel's strain mid stormy winds and adverse tides secured by this the good ship braves the rocky roadstead and the waves which thunder on her sides. Anxious no more the merchant sees, the mist driven drive dark before the breeze, the storm cloud on the hill. Calmly he rests, though far away in a boisterous climbs his vessel lay, reliant on our skill. Say on what sands these links shall sleep, fathoms beneath the solemn deep, by Afric's pestilent shore, by many an iceberg lone and hoar, by many a palmy western isle, basking in spring's perpetual smile, 
by stormy Labrador? Say, shall they feel the vessel reel when the batteries deadly peel, the crashing broadside makes her fly, or else is at the glorious Nile? Whole grappling ships that strive the while for death or victory? Hurrah! Cling, clang! Once more, what glows, dark brothers of the forge, beneath the iron template of your blows, the furnace's red breath? Clang, clang! A burning torrent, clear and brilliant, of bright sparks, is poured around and up into the dusky air, and our hammers forge the sword, the sword, a name of dread. Yet when upon the free man's thigh tis bound, while for his altar and his hearth, while for the land that gave him birth, the war drums roll and the trumpets sound, how sacred it is then! Whenever for the truth and right it flashes in the vein of flight, whether in some wild mountain pass as that where sun Ladonis or some sterile plain and stern of Marston or Bancock burn or mid fierce crags and bursting rills, the Switzer, Switzer's Alps, gray child rolls hills, or as when the sunk the armada's pride, it gleams above the stormy tide. Still, still, whenever the battle word is liberty, when men do stand for justice and their native land, then heaven bless the sword. And that is all I'm going to read today out of this particular reader. There's certainly more that we could read, and I don't want to give the impression. I'm mostly picking poems because they tend to be short and kind of easy to to do quickly and to pick up but there are also of course stories in readers and it isn't all poetry although poetry was a much larger um, important part of uh, literature in the 19th century and people were expected to know poems and to get the, all the literary references that are in them and it just tended to be a more um, prominent part of people's lives. Now, I'm going to be reading some more poems from a selection of other readers because there were just tons of, of good readers out there that are really have still interesting things. And some of them are going to be famous poems like the ones that I read. Some are going to be not so famous. And this is one of the not so famous ones. To a Post Office Inkwell by Christopher Morley. How many humble hearts have dipped in you and scrawled their manuscript, have shared their secrets, told their cares, their curious and quaint affairs. Your pool of ink, your scratchy pen, have moved the lives of unborn men and watched young people breathing hard put heaven on a postal card. And I just thought that was a nice, cute example. Oh, this is one that I really love. This is one of my favorite poems. And sadly, I, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce the author's name. But I, I think this one to myself quite often. I meant to do my work today. And it's by Richard and Lee Galilene, I think. L E and then space G A L L I E E E N N E. 
I meant to do my work today. But a brown bird sang in the apple tree, and a butterfly flitted across the field, and all the leaves were calling me. A wind went sighing over the land, tossing the grasses to and fro, and a rainbow held out its shining hand. So what could I do but laugh and go? This next one I like because of its inclusion in uh, another novel. If you follow me on Twitter at all, I'm always looking, besides references to Laura, but some other writers who I think write similar kinds of books. And one of those people is Jean Stratton Porter, who was a phenomenally interesting person in her own right. One of her books is called Laddie, A True Blue Story. And it's the in that book, Jean Stratton Porter tries to sort of... Um, finish her, her her beloved brother's unfinished life because he actually was killed at about the point where the book opens in his life. And rather than let that be what stood, she sort of finished his life for, them, for him over the course of this novel. And borrowing something I believe happened in real life to her, she, the little sister, the character that represents Porter herself in the books, gets sick. And one of the things that pulls her through it is this particular poem. She read this poem and pictured a field on their farm being full of daffodils. And that image, to, to get well enough to spring, to get to see that field full of daffodils again, kind of gave her the inspiration to keep fighting and get better. And because of that, I really like this poem. And it's called The Daffodils by William Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way. They stretched in never-ending line along the margins of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in a sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wolf the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie, in vacant or pen in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Another poem that I particularly like, though I liked this one a little uh, better before I got it through my head, that it isn't do or die, but do and die, which I don't like. I think you should at least have the, have the chance to live. This is uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade by Alfred Tennyson, which is a pretty famous poem. It's 
lovely rewritten. It's also a beautiful, famous painting. Although I always like to point out to the people that the reason that it's the Charge of the Light Brigade is when uh, the Heavy Brigade, and there was a Heavy Brigade, had looked the situation over and told them, this is suicide, we're not going. And that's when these people stepped in. So it's a beautiful poem anyway. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, and into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though a soldier knew someone had blundered. There is not to make reply, there is not to reason why, there is but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600, cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell, bloody they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600, flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air. Sabering the gunners there, charging an army, while all the world wondered, plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian, reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and thundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the 600, cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell, they that had fought so well came through jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of the 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made, honor the brigade, noble 600. Another one of my favorite poems is a patriotic one by Henry Holcomb Bennett. And it's called The Flag Goes By. Hats off along the street there comes a blare of bugles, a ruffle of drums, a flash of color beneath the sky. Hats off! The flag is passing by. Blue and crimson and white it shines over the steel-tipped ordered lines. Hats off! The colors before us fly, but more than a flag is passing by. Sea flights and land fights, grim and great, fought to make and to save the state. Weary marches and sinking ships, cries of victory on dying lips. Days of plenty, years of peace, march of a strong land, swift increase, equal justice, right and law, stately honor and reverend awe, sign of a nation great and strong to ward her people from foreign wrong. Pride and glory and honor all live in the colors to stand or fall. Hats off along the street there comes a blare of bugles, a ruffle of drums, and loyal hearts are beating high. Hats off, the flag is passing by. And I think we are down to just about three minutes. So I wanted to give one last poem. And I hope that everybody enjoyed this because I think I will probably do another batch of these for Poetry Month. These uh, were all poems that were um, now 
outside of copyright. They were uh, included in readers over the years, and I think they were a good selection and kind of gave you a feel of what elocution was at the time. And I think having a little bit of those kind of pattern and word choices and sort of the drama that they found in those kind of poems, I think gives you a kind of a bit of an insight into how people thought. And I hope uh, that you've enjoyed it. And I want to just finish up with one last poem. Tis fine to see the old world and travel up and down among the famous palaces and places of renown to admire crumbling castles and the statues of the kings. But now I think I've had enough of antiquated things. I know that Europe's wonderful, yet something seems to lack. The past is too much with her, the people looking back. But the glory of the present is to make the future free. We love our land for what she is and what she is to be. Oh, it's home again and home again, America for me. I want a ship that's westward bound to plow the rolling sea to the blessed land of room enough beyond the ocean tides where the air... The ocean spars where the air is full of sunlight and the flag is full of stars. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the poems. And those of you who have heard me uh, give programs in various times know I like to put a little allocution in. So maybe you can uh, tell everybody the next time you're at one of my programs that you've heard me give a full allocution. Have a great National World Read Aloud Day, and I'll catch you next time on Trundle Bed Tales. <laughs>